I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you're listening to The Catherine Zox Show. Joining me today is author and physician at Massachusetts General Hospital and assistant professor of medicine, Harvard Medical School, Dr. Stephen Gardner. His new book is Jabberwocky, Lessons of Love from a Boy Who Never Spoke. During his abbreviated 22-year life, Graham Gardner was unable to speak or to walk on his own, yet he forged meaningful relationships wherever he went. His cerebral palsy forced him to rely on other people, sometimes complete strangers, for absolutely everything, yet he accepted his reality, lived in the present moment, reveled in relationships, and exuded radiance around him. His parents and his community of friends, caregivers, schoolmates, and campmates were transformed by his zest for life, his sense of humor, and his grace under adversity. His father, Dr. Stephen Gardner, shares the many transformative opportunities and expressions of love that Graham and his parents experienced throughout his short life. Dr. Gardner is a winner of the Harvard Medical School Humanism in Medicine Award and past medical director of the Massachusetts Special Olympics. Welcome to the show. Dr. Gardner, Stephen. Catherine, thank you for having me on. Great to have you on. Well, right. I want to go back to when Graham was born, because as you mentioned in the book, you said you were first-time parents, your wife, Cynthia. Uh, I'm assuming your expectations were you were going to have a healthy baby, and I'm putting this in parentheses, a normal baby, but that wasn't to be, and very early on, you were able to notice that, hey, things weren't quite right. So can we start there? Sure. Sure. So the pregnancy was was unremarkable for the most part. There were no warning signs. And when Graham was born, he, he looked physically perfect. So there was nothing visibly wrong with his facial features or his limbs or anything like that. What we did notice was that he just simply wasn't making the normal milestones that babies make. For example, learning to crawl, uh, suckle, or follow an object like his mom's face with his eyes. Um, So it it was sort of a gradual process of realizing that something wasn't right. Uh, You know, it didn't didn't strike us all at once. Um, But over several months, it became evident that he just wasn't developing Normally, so we began to to meet with specialists and have tests, and ultimately that led to the diagnosis of cerebral palsy. And so, and, and as as you may know, cerebral palsy is sort of a wastebasket term uh, for any condition that's injured the infant's brain either during pregnancy or during birth, uh, and it can be mild or severe. So, in the beginning, of course, our hopes were that it would be mild. But it turned out it was severe. So he, I, I do understand that as a sort of being cerebral palsy is an umbrella. I had because I had a professor who yeah. had cerebral palsy as, as okay. MSW student, yeah, who was able to walk. I, I don't know whether he had a cane. Actually, I can't remember. But um, more, he had it more on the mild side. So when that yeah. happens as a parent, I just want to get into the feelings because uh, you know suddenly you realize that your son has a severe disability, how did you feel? Well, I think, you know, I wanted to play ball with him and all the normal dad stuff. Um, but at the same time, uh, the you know, the love that I felt for him was so profound that 
you know, quickly on, I sort of realized it didn't really matter what he was going to be able to do. He was still going to be quite perfect in, in our minds and in our hearts. Uh, and he was so intuitively, I don't know, charming and radiant and just a lovely person who, uh, you know, radiated kindness and goodness that it, it just felt wonderful to be in his presence, even if we weren't initially doing all the things that moms and dads did with, with newborns and toddlers. Later on, we found ways to do just about everything that moms and dads do with their children, as I talk about in the book. So he was able to engage with you and, and you with him in, in different ways. I, I think that I, you mentioned in the book that um, love, you, can, you don't have to be able to do all the kinds of things that we taught, you know, running and jumping and all these kinds of, to be yeah. able to, right, love each other. I think the other thing that I thought about when I read the book was that Graham, uh, you know, he was dependent on you and as I read in the intro, other strangers and, and people to take care of him that he had to trust you. I mean, he had to feel that trust and to be comfortable yeah. that, yeah, I, I, somehow that just, and, and that's that's not easy to do. Yeah, there's something, there was something almost otherworldly about that. And, um, I'm just thinking um, about the comment in Winnie the Pooh where, where um, I think it's Pig that says, how do you spell love? And Pooh says... You don't spell love, you feel it. And that's sort of, you know, we felt that with him all the time from the beginning, and that just infused our experience, you know, throughout his life. And then he transformed yeah. you. Yeah, absolutely. Uh, and absolutely. transformed everyone around him. <laughs> so, I mean, an amazing kid. Yeah, so let's talk about that, yeah. your relationship with him, and also, all you know, the caregivers, the camp, Jabberwocky, um, which is the title of the book, but it's on uh, yeah. Martha's Vineyard. Yeah, so, because that, that sure. was... Sure. Yeah. So Jabberwocky started back in 1953, well before Americans with Disabilities Act or anything else that really brought people with disabilities into the mainstream of things. Uh, but a remarkable character named Helen Lamb, nicknamed Hellcat, just got the idea that kids with disabilities, kids in wheelchairs, deserve to go to the beach, deserve to have a cookout, deserve to ride a horse, just as much as so-called able-bodied kids. She was a speech therapist down in Fall River, Massachusetts at the time. And it bothered her that she saw these, these clients of hers, these youngsters with CP, sitting indoors, sort of in the dark parlors of their families' homes on these beautiful summer days. So she made a decision to do something about it. And she picked Martha's Vineyard as the location for her camp. And in 1953, she set out on the ferry with three, three children in wheelchairs, a young assistant, very little money, and it turns out not such a great plan for what was going to happen, but more of a belief that what was going to happen was going to work out happily. And indeed it did. The people of the island embraced her idea, rallied around whenever she needed something. And that was, I think, 68 years ago, and it's been going strong ever since. Um, and it's really enriched the lives not just of the campers, but of everybody who's ever volunteered there over the years, myself included, um, certainly no volunteer has ever left there without saying that they got more out of it than they put into it. 
So um, I was lucky to sort of ride Graham's coattails there. He was a, he was a camper, uh, but it turned out they needed an extra camp dock. And so I was able to hang around and share some of, uh, some of the adventures and excitement that went on there with my son for 13 summers. And let's talk about some of those adventures because some of the things yeah. that you did with Graham, I'm like sitting in my, oh my gosh, you're kayaking. You're, I mean, you're doing, uh, you know, swimming and, and I guess you ended up, and, well, this wasn't a camp, but yeah. skiing and sailing. I right. mean, yeah, say parents now who are listening who have kids, like Graham, how did you do it? I mean. Right. You know, Catherine, I was um, not long ago read the obituary of Dick Hoyt, the, the dad who pushed his son Rick in the Boston Marathon, uh, Rick had cerebral palsy also. I think Dick pushed his son Rick, I think, 32 times in the Boston Marathon. And so there were these sort of pioneers in, let's call them adaptive sports, uh, but they're really pioneers in, in the notion that nothing's impossible. Um, one, one of them was over at uh, Camp Jabberwocky when we got there. Uh, it was a family called the Lilies. And they were adapting uh, windsurfers and kayaks so that they could be used by uh, people who couldn't walk. And we helped them out for a little while along with the camp counselors. And one day, uh, Ross Lilly said, Dr. Steve, would you and Graham like to take a ride on our uh, windsurfer? It was a windsurfer that he had created for his son, Josh, who had a similar situation with cerebral palsy. It was basically two boards that had been tied together and had a chair in the middle where the, the mast is. And we, our hearts soared, and we were, able to, we were able to sail the windsurfer on a gorgeous place um, called Senjikantakit, which is sort of a barrier lagoon on the, the north side of uh, Martha's Vineyard. It was a sparkling day. Uh, the water was perfect. The wind was light. And we had really uh, an epiphanic transformative, magical moment when we rode the wind on that windsurfer. And then that led to the other things you mentioned. Eventually, we figured out ways to ski together and ways to kayak together and ways to bicycle together, including the Pan Mass Challenge. Well, as someone, as, and I want to bring up this this uh, person in the book, but, you know, I mean, Graham was so lucky. I mean, to have a father like you and to have a mother like Cynthia, because, I mean, that obviously, I, I guess, is, is really comes through in the book. I mean, obviously, you're talking about Graham, but the book is about you, too. And I think uh, uh, maybe you can talk about that one incident when you, I mean, because you traveled with him, you went to the Bahamas, you came, he yeah. used to get seizures, he, and that when he came back on the, you came back on the plane, you and he, and yeah. he got a grand mal seizure, and you were having to control him and you know and on the airplane and it was terrifying and maybe you could yeah. finish the story because what happened afterwards um i was transformative for me when i read that little okay. piece yeah i think our, you know our what we called our spring breaks um going to the caribbean in april after the long new england winter um, was something we looked forward to and it was a reward we gave ourselves and it wasn't easy uh, taking a boy in a wheelchair who's nonverbal and can't stand up on a trip like that. But given the inspiration of, of families like the Hoyts, whom I mentioned, and the Lilies, whom I mentioned, 
you know, we decided that really, you know, nothing's really impossible if you put your mind to it. So we figured out how to do it. Um, and we had some wonderful times in the warm water of the Caribbean that was very liberating for, for Graham, by the way, just to, to float in that turquoise water that was like 83 degrees. Um, and it, it was, it was a, a journey of discovery. I mean, we didn't know if we could pull it off. We had a couple of helpers come. But uh, we ended up having just a fantastic time. And unfortunately, as you pointed out, on one of the trips, he had a terrible grand mal seizure on the way back. Um, and there was a moment in the plane where we worried, his helper and I worried that, that the pilot might put the plane down in Georgia or something and send us to an emergency room. But I, by then, knew what to do. And we got him through it. It was arduous. It was sort of hair-raising. Um, it was a high-stakes, you know, high high-tension experience. Uh, but we made it back to Logan Airport in Boston. His mom was waiting for us. And there was this huge sense of deliverance when we got on the ground and everything was okay. And uh, to your point, the compliment about me as a dad, um, as I was bringing all of our gear into the, one of those elevators up to the parking garage, uh, a young father who had been sitting behind us during the flight looked me in the eye, and I saw that there were some tears welling in his eyes. And he said, your son, he's a lucky boy. So that was a, that was a, pow a powerful statement for me to hear. Yeah. I mean, it and seems neither, to me that... Yeah. Needless to say, there were tears in my eyes for a long time. Yeah. That. that has to be a, a defining moment. Um, I also want to talk about Crotchet Mountain. I know one of, uh, I had interviewed a, an author uh, several months ago and her son, um, <laughs> it was, that's where he uh, went to school as well as Graham. So that's in New Hampshire. Um, yeah. Tell us about that, the, uh, the school. Yeah, so it turns out Crotchet was founded, uh, curiously, the same year as Camp Jabberwocky back in the 1950s. And it, I think it initially existed to help out kids with deafness from rubella or with polio. And then over the years, it, it became a, a school and a hospital for kids like Graham, who needed all kinds of therapy in addition to being in the classroom. And we were lucky to get him in there uh, when he was about 10, and he would spend four days a week there, and then he'd be home with us for the other three days, and we'd frequently go up and visit while, while he was there. But it's, it's in this bucolic spot on the top of a mountain, um, and it just seems like it's, it's in the perfect place uh, to be consistent with its mission, which is to help these kids and sometimes adults uh, try to reach their potential just like, like anyone else. So, um, so we had 10 really good years there. Um, it feels like you're in Robert, Robert Frost's backyard. There's stone walls and birch stands and deer running around in the fields. And we had, we had 10 great years there, but then at age 22, uh, funding for, for youngsters with disabilities dries up, and um, you have to find another, another place to go. Well, we're sort of touching on it, but the larger community, you, you know, you do talk about, you know, for 
um, for people to grow, all of us to grow, you need to be part of a larger community. And, you know, you touched on some of the people, but who were some of the most significant, obviously, besides you and and Graham's mother, um, who were some of the people who really became close to Graham and and made, well, they they impacted one another? A couple of them, uh, Catherine, were... Uh, employees up at Cratchit. One was the um, the music teacher, Donna Chadwick, uh, who's just a erudite, spiritual, intelligent, and lovely woman in every sense of the word. And she um, she tried to get these kids um, to communicate using music as a medium. And she developed a special bond with Graham. Um, they spent time together. Uh, with the piano and with the guitar, and, and they they did it by themselves. Even his full-time assistant wasn't allowed to go in with them while they were working. Um, but during that experience, um, Donna Chadwick developed some really stunning ideas about Graham that shocked even his adoring mom and dad. Um, she just felt that he was sort of a spiritual master, which is her, that's her quote, um, and something went on between the two of them through music um, that, that was uplifting for Graham and for Donna. Um, and another one was his just his his personal assistant there, a local um, gal from New Hampshire named Lisa, who developed much more than just a professional relationship with Graham over the years, and became really a friend and eventually family to him. And we were lucky, very lucky, to have her. I think the other story, uh, well, well I, this goes back a little bit, I guess, when Graham was in uh, elementary school, and he was allowed to be in the regular classrooms. This was in Marblehead, yeah. Massachusetts, as you point out That's in the right. book. Not an easy thing to do, but he did it. Uh, you did it. He was there, and how this one creative teacher decided to engage the kids uh, with Graham and Graham with the kids. Yeah, tell us that story. Uh, so Maddie was the fourth grade teacher, and... She came up with an idea that she called the designated driver, and uh, the notion was that she would she would appoint one of his classmates each day to push him around in his wheelchair to classes, assemblies, recess, whatever was going on. Uh, in in doing so, she was encouraging them to uh, regard Graham as as a, a true equal and someone who brought value uh, to the classroom and fun to the classroom. And as it turned out, the designated driver, um, far from being a burden to these popular charismatic kids, actually became sort of a coveted thing. And they uh, competed to see who could be Graham's designated driver from day to day. So basically, Maddie was revealing to these kids, and they understood it immediately, um, that we're all in this together, whatever our abilities and disabilities may be. We all belong together as part of the same community. And if somebody needs a hand, you give them a hand. Um, and uh, if, you know, if the person is seemingly ne- needing help, quite often they end up returning um, the gesture in some other way that benefits uh, the driver in this case. So, yeah, so Maddie was instrumental 
in showing these kids that there's no reason to be scared of somebody who's different from you. And we don't leave anybody on the side of the road in our society. We all brought along for the adventure and the ride. And now, the at age 22, when Graham dies and you are left without him, um, and obviously grieving, um, yeah. a, a new life for you. Uh, let's you know, talk about that, because the loss has sure. to be overwhelming. Absolutely. I think, you know, you, um, you could cry forever uh, when you lose somebody that you love that much. Um, and as a physician, I can say that I've observed that people grieve in different ways and for different lengths of time. There's no right or wrong way to do it. Um, there was kind of a seminal moment um, several months after Graham passed away when his mom and I had to make a decision uh, about whether or not to return to Camp Jabberwocky as volunteers. We knew that it would be painful on the one hand because we'd enjoyed these delightful adventures uh, with, with our son at that special place. And it would be painful um, to have him not there. We, were sh- we would surely miss him. Um, we'd surely cry some tears of sadness. But on the other hand, we concluded that there was no other place on earth that would nurture us and and provide succor and laughter to us in the moments when we most needed it, uh, when Graham was no longer with us. So we we came to the conclusion that we should go back to Camp Jabberwocky as volunteers again, and it proved to be a wonderful decision. Um, when we got back there, we were just surrounded by the compassion and the love and, and the silliness of this extended family that we'd become part of. Um, and Graham's spirit was still there very much. A garden was planted in his honor, for example. We had a beautiful um, memorial service uh, at the water's edge one night. Um, so that proved to be a really good decision. And as you know... Um, Laughter, humor, silliness, being with other people, all that stuff is very therapeutic. What about, you know, immediately after he died, I thought about this. You said, you know, sometimes, getting back to, you know, you have to always take his wheelchair and wherever you went and assemble things and push him in his wheelchair. But yet, when he died, then the thing you missed is pushing him in his wheelchair and doing yeah. all the, yeah. Yeah, exactly, exactly. Um, we went to a movie premiere in Newton one night uh, where there's some of the, the campers and their parents were there, and they were, we, we watched the parents pushing wheelchairs, and Cynthia and I looked at each other and realized, wow, you can, you can miss pushing a wheelchair, and we actually asked one or two of the parents if we could push their kids around in the lobby. Um, and it felt so familiar and wonderful to do that. Um, so that was something that we, we didn't, probably didn't expect to miss, but we did. And, uh, and so- I kept that wheelchair, Graham's wheelchair, for quite a long time. Um, emotionally, it was just hard to let it go. Um, I can't say how long I had it for sure, but it sat in the dining room, empty, almost like a holy object. And I just, I just didn't want to move it. 
And finally, over time, I realized that somebody else should be sitting in that chair, somebody else who was loved by their parents and pushed by their parents around through another life. And that's what Graham would have wanted to happen with his chair. So after a while, I gave it uh, to Crotchet Mountain and felt good about that. So I guess the process of grieving is different for everybody and the timing is different for everybody. Like you said, you weren't yeah. ready to give away his well, his wheelchair and maybe other things. And then when the time was right for you, you were able to do it. Um, we only have a couple yeah. minutes left. Um, so I guess tell us now, after all these years, I assume you're in a different place um, and a different place with Graham. And where is that place? So, Catherine, this book, Jabberwocky, has been amazing for me in that it has, it's felt as if it's pulled people back into our lives through sort of invisible lines of connection, people that had started to drift away, for example, Graham's childhood friends. Uh, but because of the book, and because of sort of celebrating his legacy, celebrating his life, um, a lot of people have come back into our experience and remembered and uh, cheered and laughed and been excited to think about him again. So I almost feel as if his his goodness, his love, his the work that he did is still is ongoing and it has been ongoing, but the book's sort of helped it, helping it along a little bit too now. Um, and uh, it's almost as if he his presence and his energy are behind it, and I was sort of the scribe who put it down. Uh, but it's been delightful to hear people respond to the story of his life um, and also relate, relate his, the story of his life to events in their own lives and maybe in some ways feel a little bit better about things, adversity that's happened to them. Well, I think, Stephen, you absolutely did that because we all have losses in our life and lives and grieving. And, and this book, Jabberwocky, that's exactly what you did. I mean, it, it's, um, I just want to mention the book again, Jabberwocky, Lessons of Love from a Boy Who Never Spoke. And we've been talking to his dad, uh, Graham Gardner, is, and his dad is Dr. Stephen Gardner. So, um, Stephen, we could buy the book online, bookstores everywhere, um, I assume, yeah. and give us a website yeah. and or websites we can go to, to get more information. We've got a minute left. So jabberwockybook.com is a great source, uh, and it does explain how to pre-order the book, which is coming out on May 18th on Amazon, Barnes & Noble, and other places. should be available everywhere uh, after May, May 18th. Um, can I just say one more, one more thought about him? You have 30 seconds, Doctor. <laughs> yeah, so Mr. Rogers is one of my favorite philosophers, and you know, he said... The only thing that really changes the world is when one person gets the idea that love can abound and be shared. And that thought really characterized uh, Helen Lamb, who started Camp Jabberwocky. And I think Graham's life is a fantastic uh, representation of that, that thought. Thank you so much for sharing all of that with us. Um, we really appreciate it. Yeah. I'm Catherine Zox, your social worker with a microphone, and you've been listening to The Catherine Zox Show. (laughs) 